Welcome to A Sex Worker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the answer to life, the universe, and everything is sex workers. I'm your host, Parker Westwood, and today I'm excited to bring you uh, a fellow Michigander. I'm no longer in Michigan, but uh, I like to I like to feature my Michigan folks because I will always be a Michigander at heart. <laughs> I'm a Midwest mama, but Michigan's got a special place in my heart. Um, yeah, so today I'm bringing you an interview with Christy Cooper, who is a former sex worker, uh, current librarian and author, and wrote the book, I Was a Stripper Librarian. And it's fantastic. Uh, I had a really fun time reading it. I read it super fast, which is always a good sign for me when reading a book. It means it's uh, compelling. And it was super relatable as a former stripper. We talk about it. I really love this this interview because we get to dive into um, stripping as an industry, which I hadn't done on the podcast before. And when I was a stripper, I found it really fucked up and fascinating how... Uh, stripping as an industry works. So I'm really excited for y'all to get a little glimpse into that for those of you who don't know. Um, It's a lot of food for thought. It's a lot of uh, workers getting taken advantage of. Not in the way that people like to say strippers get taken advantage of. We are getting taken advantage of as workers. It's, uh, yeah, just listen. It's great. Um, We also get to talk about stigma and the pressure of living a double life um, when you're really trying to keep your identity your your sex work identity secret and living a double life can become a lot for your psyche to handle Um, so we get to hear christy open up about that and also learning about community organizing because christy moves on to do uh, community organizing in the sphere of libraries and has learned learned a lot about like data security and how to organize from sex workers. So this interview is rich and fun and it's a little clumsy at first. I'll say that because <laughs> uh, I decided to start with like the heavyweight questions. Pro tip as an interviewer, just like don't do that. Um, but you know, you live, you learn. Here we are learning together. Um, if you are enjoying this podcast... During this giving season, you can go on over to patreon.com slash sexygalaxypod and support the work not only of this podcast, but of uh, Answer Detroit, a network of sex workers to excite revolution. Uh, They're doing some really exciting work. I'm proud to say that I'm a member and we just kick ass, take names, do a lot of harm reduction, mutual aid, and fight for the decriminalization and destigmatization of sex workers everywhere. So go do that if you're feeling it. If you're not, that's great. Keep listening. I'm still glad you're here. You can also follow us on Twitter at SexyGalaxyPod. Um, leave a review if if you don't got like the funds to spend, but you got a little bit of time and some words. Go ahead and leave a review. It does help uh, boost the show to more people. And this show is brought to you by Companion Tax. If you are a fellow sex worker and you hate doing your taxes, consider having someone else do them for you, like Companion Tax. They do a great job. They're thorough. They answer 
any of your questions and they will break it down into layman's terms for people like me who get sick of legalese language. So companiontax.com, go check them out. And now that we've gotten all of those things squared away, we can get into this interview with Christy Cooper about her book, I Was a Stripper Librarian, and many other things. Enjoy. I am here today with uh, Christy Cooper. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, let's start with uh, an introduction, just introducing yourself, name, pronouns, where you're located if you wish to share, and then what kind of sex work you do or have done. So yeah, my name is Christy Cooper. I am, my pronouns are she, they. I'm trying to remember all the questions. Um, yeah, sorry. I live, <laughs> I live in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, that's, that's like in, right by Ann Arbor, Metro Detroit area. And um, there was one more. I'm going to remember what it was. Um, oh, yeah. I w- used to be a stripper. And also, I used to be a dominatrix, too. Yeah. I, in I your just book- barely touched on it in the book. But- yeah. I was like, you throw that in there randomly in the book. And, and a lot of people were like, it. I wanted to know more about that. But I was like, I, I don't know. I was trying to make, I was shooting for this kind of level of accessibility that I wasn't sure that if I threw all of that in at different time periods, that it was like, would have been, I didn't, I couldn't come up with a good way to do it, I guess, without right. I throwing things off too much. It would like mess up the flow of what you had. Yeah. 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 Um, which is one thing that I, you wrote a book. Uh, we need to talk about that. Uh, you wrote a book. I was a stripper librarian from cardigans to G strings. There's going to be no video, but I'm showing it to the computer anyway. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic. I, as a former stripper myself, I related to so much. Um, how do you feel having written a book? It's actually my third, it's actually my third book, but um, I have like a series I never finished writing, like a young adult, like dystopian thriller series, but I just, it's just, I have to finish it now, so it's just, it's like complete, um, I have to go back to that since I got back into writing mode anyway, um, but yeah, it's just something that's been kind of just weighing on me for a long time, I started writing it about seven years ago, and I looked my first, I wrote my entire first draft, and then I just sat on it a long time because I really didn't have a, a really like a plan on how I wanted to release it, or I don't think I was at the comfort level of being open and out about it. Yeah. Um, because I even feel like I've had, you know, I not surprisingly, my biggest readership has been librarians so far, but they <laughs> <laughs> they um overall the response has been pretty good. And I don't know if I would have gotten as good of a response even five or ten years ago if I came out with this story, like, I don't know if that would have happened. Yeah. I think, would have right. I think you're right about that. Things have shifted a lot in the last five years. Um, yeah. And one of the things I love your, your intro and your afterward are like everything for me. Um, I think they're just, they're jam packed full of information and you like just tactfully tie everything together. But in the intro, you like lead in with talking about shame and stigma mm-hmm. um, around sex work, which I, I appreciate a lot. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about your experience. Obviously, like you, you talk a lot about in the book, just like 
having this paranoia of like people knowing who you were or knowing what you did for work. Um, and what was, what was your experience with shame and stigma? Well, I think I realized it more like looking back, you know, I think, you know, I just sort of felt stressed out and I don't think I, I mean, I knew I had like a secret double life, but I don't think I, I don't even know, maybe had the emotional vocabulary to understand that's what I was, you know, that's what I was experiencing. And that's why I had that kind of like additional stress and how that, that stress factor plays into, you know, the kind of emotional load of sex work. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I think it made me to some degree, I was like closed off with people for a while. Cause I was like, okay, if they get to know me, then I'll have to tell them. And, you know, and it just didn't, um, and I don't want to deal with how they respond because no one ever responds well. And it just doesn't, <laughs> um, and they quickly change the topic on you and you know why, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And we do enough emotional labor in our work. We don't need to be doing that for other people just in our social lives. Um, yeah. I, when you were talking about um, in the book, oh my God, so many things are going through my head right now from your book, but there's, there's the point where you're talking about um like telling other people and even just talking about it now, I'm, I'm in that place right now where I'm like, in, be like introducing myself to new people. And I have to navigate the, like, do I tell them? Don't I tell them? Do I have, do I share my cover story? How far can I take my cover story? Um, and it's, it's really, it is a huge, hugely stressful part of sex work. And I, having that first thing in your book or like one of the first things in your book was really, uh, I just knew where you were going and I trust you to hold the like sex worker experience through the rest of the book. It was really great. Oh yeah. I appreciate hearing that. Yeah. Um, you also in that very same intro, I did say it was jam packed. You talk about like why destigmatization is important, which makes sense following talking about stigma, um, but also talking about decriminalization um and you do a really good job of defining what a swerf is and I don't know that we've actually talked about that on this podcast so I was hoping sure. <laughs> it's, could... such a we it's such a weird word right um mm -hmm. yeah um for anyone who's listening um it stands for sex worker exclusive radical feminism so it and honestly, I think that like, unless you know a lot about the history of feminism, that sounds confusing because like, there's, how is that radical? Why is that considered radical? Like that does, that, that seems like regressive. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you're excluding sex workers. And, um, and I should also add that a lot of times swerfs and turfs tend to go hand in hand. It's like a very similar type of, you know, old, old, I guess you can say old timey now, old timey seventies feminism. Right. Um, <laughs> and turf that, for those who don't for those who aren't aware uh turf is a trans exclusionary radical feminism yeah so there, this isn't really to me this is not a radical position at all but I think it it uh it it stems from like this kind of like what was a radical feminism in the 70s where there was almost like this like women's women like separating from like men and not like we're, we don't need them and so um, 
you know, being a sex worker, you are, you know, working with, you're working with men and, and they, there was this idea that you could almost get above like your sexuality and you shouldn't use your sexuality because I don't know, there was like the radical ideas back then were some things like all sex is rape, you know? So I don't know. <laughs> and I think that since then there's been a lot of different, like much more evolved thought on that, on that area. But I, and I think, I feel like I'm oversimplifying it. I don't know, but that's just kind of my understanding of where that stems from. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with like, if you're playing into the male gaze, that's damaging women as a whole sort of. Yeah. 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 At least you're hurting other women. Yes. Yeah. Um, which like is just problematic on so many levels. Um, because, you know, that's like, say, like what the, it's the same sort of thing of like, you're, if you're a stay at home mom, you're like not, if you choose to do that, you're not a feminist or whatever. Yeah. Like you're playing yeah. these roles. Um, and that, that's damaging to like women's choice um, to do those things. Um, you have this line that I just, I'm going to read out loud to you if that's okay with you, um, because I loved it. Um, you're right. It is time for us to culturally move past the white carceral feminism of the past and embrace true intersectional feminism, which I just, I'm like, yes, please. Can we do that? And I was hoping for our listeners that like may not know what white carceral carceral feminism looks like, um, and what true intersectional feminism like could look like would you would you talk about that a little bit describe those terms sure. I'll I will I will try um yeah <laughs> I, no pressure I think well I think though I think it's become more common for people now to talk about like what white feminism is and like you know it's extreme limitations um but like throwing into there a lot of times white feminism is also very carceral mm-hmm. um and just being that it's like tied into this idea of, of, you know, that we need to have punishment in order, um, you know, and we need to control other people um, in order to, you know, keep, keep women safe. Mm-hmm. And being that, that could be, we're controlling other women who we don't think are doing something that's safe. And we're going to put, you know, the, the law and the police and you know specifically more target you're going to target more women and non-binary people of color um especially trans people who are all the more like in danger of being targeted by the police by having this idea that something like this needs to be um controlled by the state yep so yeah i often think of like any any sort of carceral policies around us anything around uh, criminalizing sex work is based on this delusion that we can actually control other people using the law. Um, Like it's, or control other people, period. Um, Like we, we cannot control other people. And there's like this attempt, continuous attempt to keep doing so, which is why I like yeah, the carceral policies just don't seem to work. Um, they don't work. And when you talk about um, true intersectional feminism, 
I think the term intersectional has been like come up a lot more lately in like in social media and and just more mainstream platforms. Um, would you feel comfortable talk, talking a little bit about like what is intersectional feminism and why it's a better option to carceral feminism? Sure. I mean, I think that you see kind of more like this kind of growing understanding among like white liberal feminist women that they need to start taking into account other perspectives. So they're talking, you know, more about making sure that they are supporting people of color, um, trying to support queer people. Um, and even if like they're not doing it very well, they're at least beginning to consider that's something that needs to be part of the, the puzzle. And so that what I was trying to do there was include sex workers in that as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's that's very right. It's just like understanding. I mean, the read I get was like understanding that there are other people's experiences um, and not, we don't just get to like make all the rules from one point of view. Um, okay. I started with all the hard stuff, so I apologize. I was like, let's just talk about feminism and policy and stigma right away. Um, <laughs> and those are the but, hardest chapters to write too, because I felt like, I mean, it was a lot of just kind of synthesizing and I'm like I could probably do this better but I'm gonna try like you did great I like honestly like I said your intro and your afterward are so packed it's amazing well I did I started with the hard stuff but I did want to talk about stripping as an industry because it's wild and I have I haven't had um another we haven't talked about stripping on the show Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, I've listened to a few of your episodes so far, but I didn't um, go through all of them yet. Yeah, we haven't really like, I mean, a lot of the people who I've gotten to talk about stripping with have been like uh, former strippers, now escorts. Mm -hmm. I don't think, not to my recollection, have we really like talked about the fact that strippers are contractors mm -hmm. um, and the dance card bullshit, which you talk about avoiding getting a dance card like throughout did you ever get one you didn't ever get no one. no I just I just worked in different cities that is wild <laughs> yeah um so I, I kind of want to give a um like between the two of us give a picture of like what the fuck does stripping look like as an industry so that people can get it um would you do you feel comfortable talking a bit about like the setup of like strippers as contractors and kind of the layout a little bit? Sure, and I, I should uh, do everything with the, the caveat ahead of time that I did it like wait how long? Like fourteen years ago. So I mean, it, but I know like the structure hasn't really changed in terms of how you're how you know how you're treated as a worker mm -hmm. um, by like your club and um, the state. And so you're, yeah, you're an independent contractor. Uh, so you have to pay to work there. Um, you have to pay a house fee. Um, and it, it's usually the structures either like it's a set amount or it's a percentage of dances. Mm -hmm. And I tried both types of ways. I did not like paying for a percentage of my dances at all. That I think that really sucked. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, then you, 
are also responsible for tipping out your DJ and um, and your bouncers and then some other like fancy, fancy clubs. I, I think you have even more people you have to tip out. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I found that I worked better at the less fancy clubs. So that was just more my, my ended up being my jam. Yeah. Um, and so you're also, part, yeah. So you're also responsible for some of their pay. Um, so the, the club gets money from um, the dancers coming in. They get money from, you know, the door fee. They get money from the overinflated alcohol sales that are, you know, ridiculously expensive for the customers coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, a lot of clubs also require to pay for getting into like the private dance room. So there's an additional fee there. So those are all the things that they get by the way that they, they have designed their, their pay structure. Um, and I remember thinking at the time this, and I knew it was, I knew it was all bullshit, but I was like, couldn't even imagine how you would organize against it. And since then I've had a lot of experience, a lot more experience with like political organizing. Um, and now, nowadays just even see the way that like, um, sex workers and strippers specifically can organize online and actually share this information in ways that weren't really possible back then to like, be like, I, I can imagine how it could actually be fought a lot harder than it could have been back then. Absolutely. Um, It does make it really difficult to unionize like in the club itself. If mm -hmm. everyone's private contractors and transient from club to club, but I mean, it can be done there. There have been a few um, stripper unions over the last like decade or so, or a couple decades, but um, yeah, it makes it really hard to unionize when you're not technically an employee. Um, And then you're also paying um, employer and employee taxes because you work for yourself. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, the dance card part. Um, so here in Michigan, there's two different cities that I found out required dance cards before I, like, you have to get registered with the city. Um, I believe at the time it was like $170 in Romulus, Michigan, and there's a few clubs there. And then it, there was, um, 350 for Detroit. To work in Detroit at the time mm-hmm. um and I was just like well I'm just even just trying this out I don't know 100 I'm gonna like try it and see I'm not gonna pay this kind of money um if I don't know if I'm gonna stick with it and also a lot of people when they go into stripping to start with don't have a lot of money to get started so that's really it's another barrier of entry um yeah but then you're registered you're in some type of database um and I never really yeah, I never really knew what they do with that information, but it just sounded shady and creepy yeah. to me. It's super creepy. I um, I had the experience of getting a dance card. The first dance card I got was like a $50 dance card. And I was like, that sounds fine. Um, but the, when I danced in Detroit, it was, not only was it a ton more money, Um, but you had to go on this like wild goose chase for all of the, like, you had to check all these boxes. You couldn't have any parking tickets or moving violations. So you had to get all those cleared up. Yeah. Strippers are the, like, they had the cleanest driving record in Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that you could not have any parking violations or like parking thing, tickets or moving violations. You had to get a notarized letter like you had to go get this letter notarized that said something about 
I, I saved it. I have it somewhere. Cause it says like, um, permit to, it doesn't say cabaret license, which is what it's technically called. It says permit to work in this, like a sex related industry. It's like super slut shamey, mm. um, which just, cause you have to go, I went to my bank and I just like had them notarize it because I didn't, I was like, I don't care at this point, but I could see how, if anyone was trying to keep what they were doing a bit more secret than I was trying, um, then it would be really hard to actually get the dance card. And again, it didn't say cabaret license that just like irritated the fuck out of me. (laughs) This is not what this is. And I worked with girls who'd gotten the dance card and who had told me, but I just always, and if I maybe stayed in it a little bit longer, I may have, I was, I was at the point where I probably would not have cared as much, but it's still, that's like 350 bucks. Like that's like a, a night of work just to be allowed to work. Like, yeah. You know, and it's probably so much more even now. I can't even imagine that was 14 years ago. Yeah. I think in Detroit, it's about, it's about the same. The, the part that drives me crazy is that like you said, it's an accessibility thing. And like the Detroit dance card requires you to drive around to these multiple different places. You can only pay, this is another part. You can only pay for it with a money order from specifically from the post office. You can't get it from anywhere else. So weird. Yeah. So you're literally on a wild goose chase um, in order to pay for it. And oftentimes the complexity of that is like how managers like quote unquote managers will like start managing strippers and be like I'll I'll handle your dance card thing for you I have a car I can drive Mm. you around I can like get get all this thing I can pay for it and then you can pay me back um and I have that's creepy yeah I avoided the managers by just being old enough to be like fuck off um I think experienced enough to be like fuck off but yeah so I'm I when you were like I didn't get a dance card I was just like good for you because <laughs> it well, I figured I was going from like Ann Arbor and like I ultimately ended up working at a lot of clubs in Inkster which I was like that's far enough yeah you know and, and, and like, I ended up liking the dive bar vibe best. So that's kind of what I stuck with for most of the time. It's, it's more fun, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like le- less, I feel like a little bit less of a hustle. Like, yeah, well, you know, one of my friends said something about um, like class drag, a lot of sex work is class drag. And I felt, I felt in the like divier bars that I didn't have to stretch so far doing class drag. Um, it just like kept my energy level where I was comfortable. You also worked in both topless and nude clubs. Yes. Will you tell, tell listeners who may not know the differences between the two a little bit about this? Um, well, this, this is the case in Michigan, but it's kind of true. Most, most places where there's a rule, if you work in a topless club, you can have alcohol. And if you work in a full nude club, you can't have alcohol. There's like a, you know, a juice bar. And I was a heavy drinker back then. So when I did a full nude club, I like it was funny. We had um they did let us take breaks because this was also a club that treated us actually like we were employees, but actually what were we though? Because I had to pay a percentage <laughs> of my dances. I think that we were employees in the sense that if I didn't make minimum wage, they would have like given me minimum wage for the shift or something. Okay. I think so that technically would have like I never I don't think that ever happened, but I 
I think that's how they got away with it because they could be like, well, we would, we would give you, you know, $5 and whatever it was back then per hour <laughs> if you didn't sell any dances. Um, but well, so the, we got, a, we got a little break. And so then you'd pair up with like another, like another girl and you'd go decide if your break was to go smoke weed or to go to the bar next door and do shots. So I would go to the bar next door and do, <laughs> do shots and come back. That and I also like had Jaeger that I would carry around with me in a little um 20 ounce Coke bottle. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It it helps take the edge off for sure. Um also there's the like you can be 18 to work at a strip club, but you have to be 21 to enter if there's alcohol. Um mm-hmm. which I always I worked at a topless and I was definitely under 21 when I started and always thought that was like really ridiculous because I couldn't come in as a, as like a patron, I, but I could come into work. Yeah. 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 Speaking of like your, you were talking about your drinking and like going next door to take shots in the middle of work and stuff. One of the things about in your book, I really appreciate is like you you're really vulnerable. Like you're super relatable in the book. You call yourself out on, um, like very human behaviors that like, you might not be so proud of now. Um, but (laughs) (laughs) some drinking, some bad drinking, um, events in there. Right. (laughs) There's like, yeah, it makes it really relatable. Like I found you to be someone that like, I was like, oh, we'd probably, we would have been friends if we worked at the same club one of the things you call yourself out on is like moments of, of whorephobia. Oh yeah. Um, and like the in- internalized, um, like hierarchy that, that yeah. happens. Um, I, I was hoping that you would talk a little bit about like when you witnessed that in yourself, like, was it after the fact or during or a little of both and like why you chose to include it in the book? Um, I would, I would say it started during, um, I think, you know, having started out in um, domination, like I literally had a summer as a dominatrix in Chicago. Yes. (laughs) Like I was, when I was 20, you know, like I was like, I like, that was my, you know, I always told me that was my summer job when I was 20. People were like, what what the fuck? (laughs) But, um, (laughs) but, um, and that came from like, honestly, I just thought the outfits were cool and I hung out at goth clubs, but like, um, (laughs) I mean, you know, and I think I, ha- I have good instincts for it. And I end up talking, I end up talking about that in the book too, about how that was a little bit of my specialty in the strip club is like when we had like submissive or like fetish customers, a lot of times if like the other girls were weirded out by him, they'd, they'd send him to me. Yeah. Um, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can handle him. But like. <laughs> Armpits, no problem. You got it. Yeah. That's not a big deal. I can do that. Um, um but yeah, so I started out there and I remember even at the time, I'm like, well, I'm not getting naked. No one is, you know, like, I'm like that, like for me, that was a taboo. So I think even I, I have to start there to kind of talk about it. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't strip because, you know, people could see me naked. And then, you know, I think though, as time went on and I was thinking about like making more money to pay off my grad school debt. Um, and I, you know, it had friends who had done it and learned about it more from them. And I was just like, you know what, like, this is, this is, this is dumb. I should just do it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like not that big of a deal. Um, And so, and it's funny because it's, there's definitely this idea of like, I think the, the, the hierarchy kind of starts with like less and less contact 
less and less like clothes or whatever and then moving down to like you know full service and mm-hmm. and even within there, there there's these different kind of navigation or different kind of um I think perspectives too where I remember feeling judged by um other people who only did online stuff and I'm like, and I and I'm judging them in my head too I'm like well I wouldn't like let any pictures or videos exist of me so and yes. just like, yes, <laughs> well yeah, I touch, yeah, they, they touch me, but I don't like it's it's it was dumb. It was dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, and I eventually, I think you know, just as time went on, I met more girls who had um, who had escorted, and I started getting more curious. And I actually met like um, some sex work activists. I talk about that in there, and I basically I'm like I'm ready, like you know, I'm like I've gotten solicited enough times. I, you know, why not hustle for this in the clubs? I should just like, you know, go, go ahead and give it a try. And unfortunately I was in a relationship at the time where he, uh, he, he was good about me being a stripper. He never tried to like stop me. Yeah. But when I brought that up, he like, yeah, didn't like it. And I shouldn't have listened to him, but <laughs> you know, but I, I had these like potential mentors and everything, oh. you know, like they were going to help me. It was going to be great, you know, great. Like I, I should have totally gone for it. Yeah. I mean, hindsight is 2020. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, it was during that time. And I don't know, I don't think I knew the word um, horiarchy back then, yeah. but I know, you know, the idea though, where I'd realized I had had these kind of judgments, you know, in the same way that like, even when I did admit that I stripped to people and they're like, you didn't have sex, did you? It was like, like, why do you need to verify that? Like, why does that make it more okay for you that I stripped? Like, right. Right. And it's like, also they're, they're just these like made up boundaries that keep us Mm -hmm. from going into like, quote unquote, like bad girl zone or like these, these places that are, mm, I like hate it, but like quote beneath, beneath us. Like we just, we make it up so that we can feel good about what we're doing. And, um, it's not just in sex work. It's like, as humans, we tend to do that. Um, but it just turns out to be extra damaging in sex work when we're just like making these imaginary partitions. And I think one, one thing that's kind of some like similar to that, that I do now, um, similar to that idea, not as much stigma, but that idea of things being beneath you, like I'm a librarian, but I'm, I'm part-time. I'm also a single mom. Right. And my other job, I run a small house painting business. And so sometimes I get the idea from people that they would never clean toilets. And I'm like, this is not a big deal to me. Like right. this idea that that is beneath you uh-huh. to clean a toilet. Like I just, yeah. And it's, there's probably a lot of class elements in there as well. Mm-hmm. Like coming from a more working class background where this is like, I don't know. Yeah. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. We're all humans. We all shit. So why not clean a toilet? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I feel that. And I, I appreciate you talking about just like, yeah, like honestly opening up in about your own personal experience, the, the last couple chapters of your book, I'm kind of shifting a little bit away from stripping right now and talking more about like librarian stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, because you were, you were stripping to pay for your degree at the university of Michigan. Yeah. And which is like, the student debt is something near and dear to my heart. Cause I'm like still in it, still rolling with, with some loans. Um, and so you 
in the last couple chapters of your book, you talk about like actually um, getting to be in that career path of um, being a librarian and then also just like kicking ass and taking names when, um, was it the Westland Library? Was it that? that yeah, yeah, yeah. I I have some um, minor infamy in Michigan libraries. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I was just kind of like, fucking yes, you learned from sex workers. Like, kick at, go kick ass. Um, but yeah, basically, you like took on the board of directors and got librarians their jobs back and. Because you weren't currently working at that library, you got to just like raise hell. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was great to hearing about that. I don't know if you want to talk about that experience at all and like what you learned throughout all of that. Sure, that was a very like kind of yeah important experience for me. I, I used yeah. to work at that library. I had taken a career break um, in part because. I couldn't stand like my director or the board there anymore mm -hmm. but I used the excuse that I was going to stay home with my um with my young um like my newborn baby yeah um and then I you know I ended up doing some other things for a while and then eventually I got back to libraries but I found out like maybe four years after I left that they fired five librarians who were trying to unionize um and they try to make it sound like it, you know, like it was just like incidental that they were the the five union organizers. Of course, and sound that way. <laughs> well, I went. Um, so I went to their next board meeting. One of the librarians asked me to live stream it so her parents could watch from home, and I ended up sharing um, the my just my Facebook live stream had like seventeen thousand views, and everyone was watching this. And it kind of helped that the board president was such a cartoon villain that he just it was very easy to like for people to want him to like get defeated. Amazing. So yeah, when you're like fight when you're fighting like some bad guys, like I found in you know in political organizing, having a having an over the top um, bad guy sometimes is helpful to you because <laughs> it helps organize people to kind of get behind your cause. Um, he ended up trying to like talk a bunch of shit about me on uh, the Michigan Library Listserv. Um, and all that did was just make more librarians in the state mad at him. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I just felt, I, I just was filled with like rage and like, I just like spent the next three and a half months, like fighting to till all five of the board members and the director resigned. So <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. Well, and it's like, you were angry for good reason, not just because he was personally attacking you, but it sounds like they were funneling money where it didn't need to be going and cutting people's jobs um in the process and it was some seriously sketchy shit from the way you outline it in the book yeah but I think it was a very pivotal like pivotal experience for me because after that I did like I just got knee deep in political organizing and I still do like advisory stuff for people trying to deal with you know awful library boards now just kind of strategy and like how to monitor strategy against them. Yeah, the public pressure. Are you still the executive director of that nonprofit? What is the name? Yeah, I never made it an official nonprofit. That's kind of one of my problems. I'm just always like, <laughs> I have this idea, and like, there's, you know, I like too many ideas. That's. I'm... I I love that about you already. I don't even really know you, but I'm here for it. <laughs> like too many ideas. Like, so I have many parallel lives in my head. So. 
Yeah. Yes. It's great. <laughs> I have one right now from listening to one another one of your podcasts with, um, what was it? Cat Morgan. Uh-huh. I'm like, I go back. I mean, I'm 40 now, but like I could be a dominatrix again. I'm like, yeah. right, w- listen to that. I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? I want to be exactly like her. So yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you get connected at, you were 20, correct? Mm-hmm. How did you get um, connected to that? Was it just like being at goth clubs and someone came up to you and was like, you'd be perfect for this? Or like, how did that work for you? I mean, I was interested in it. I joked around about it. I was at a club in Chicago where um, the bartender was also a dominatrix. So I was talking to her and she was agreed. She was like, you can be my intern. I was like, yay. Yes. And, um, but then like, she just never got organized enough to um, make it happen. Like she sent me to go get a, like a photo shoot. And I got these, like these like really sweet fetish photos done. And then, but she just, it wasn't, she never got organized enough. Um, so I ended up like, I actually just applied to like a dungeon in Chicago. Um, and they called me and I went in for an interview and, uh, and it was a super, super strange, interesting place. Um, I found out a few weeks into working there that there was a whole separate dungeon on another floor where the headmistresses were um, like rivals because they hated each other. So all of their girls worked on different shifts. Drama, yeah. shmama. I love yeah, that. It was, it was interesting so and we weren't supposed to talk to her girls if we saw them coming in at the end of our shift or vice versa whoa yeah yeah that's wild yeah oh I I've never worked in a dungeon it is one thing that I've uh it's on my list it's on my list of things to do at some point and I I thought about doing that in Detroit but there wasn't anywhere to like there wasn't any Every, there was a few people who are working independently. Yeah. But there wasn't like a, like a, like a house I could go. I didn't feel experienced enough to go out on my own. Like I felt like I needed a headmistress again to kind of guide me. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I like the, mm, I, there are times I miss the like camaraderie and the bustle of the strip club. And I, not that the, a dungeon would be as bustly or as much that, but I, I like the idea of working with other with other people Mm -hmm. as well um yeah Detroit get on that shit Uh, (laughs) we need we need a dungeon well I did I was curious is there anything around like what you learned as a stripper or skills you picked up as a stripper that have like noticeably helped you in your career path as a librarian let's see I think knowing um or just like working with a wide variety of people um, I think some, I've, I've seen some people go into libraries who are not, you know, the, and a lot of us come into it because I like to read books and, you know, it's like, you're a public librarian, you are dealing with a wide variety of different people coming up to your desk when sometimes they're not in a good mood. Um, just being kind of expanding the kind of personalities I can work with, but I also, I also waited tables and stuff before that too. Yeah. Um, but I think being able to deal with, you know, just higher levels of bullshit, I guess. Mm-hmm. And this was probably more from waiting tables, but I had, I was kind of like the bouncer at this Jenny's I worked at. Mm-hmm. So like we had, we had drunk people fighting, like I got sent to go stop them. Um, <laughs> but same thing, I stopped a fight one time in, um, in the library I used to work at uh, between two people fighting over a computer. But um, <laughs> you just exude like the, the like authority and like a little scary 
do you think or like I, I think it's well I'm five one and I think that what I usually do is I, I have the element of surprise so it's like you don't expect it coming from me yeah for me to come out there and be aggressive with you and like shut it down <laughs> I love that yeah one of the clubs I worked at we did not have a bouncer there was no bouncer. Oh, wow. Um, it was a very like little, little dive bar. And, um, when I was like the, the burliest looking dancer. So every once in a while I would get sent over to like threaten somebody or like kick somebody out. Um, so I was also that person. It's a, it's like flex your muscles and be like, listen, you're just like, do you want this heel up your ass? No. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the answer would be yes, but they would still calm down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just depends on the person. Um, one of the things I, as I was reading, like kind of the, the afterword of you, your book where you start to, you talk about SESTA-FOSTA um, and like data security. One of the things that kind of like clicked for me was that this common thread of um, like censorship and, and workers' rights issues that are super connected with both li- libraries and strip clubs. Um, at least that's, that's what it did for me. So correct me if I'm wrong. There's this like, there's definitely censorship issues in both, um, both arenas where like, yeah. I mean, obviously with sex work, but then with, li- with libraries, it can be more subtle with like, funding coming in or like um oh my god words are not working for me today um like special issue or special interest issues like creeping into libraries so I was just curious if you had any thoughts on I guess on that like the tie between libraries and strip strip clubs and like things you've noticed that are similar I honestly like when you say that though when I think about it like part of what librarians are supposed to or known for is supposed to be like champions against censorship yes and in we have like banned book banned books week and that kind of thing where we showcase like a lot of things that have been challenged and how we've defended them yeah but at the same time um i feel like in the current political climate libraries librarians are not doing that great of a job explaining what what censorship is there's all these people who think they're being censored when it's like your book's gonna stay in the library you know it, it's only censorship when we're like we're removing this from the library because we think this content you know people shouldn't have access to it right um and but yeah even kind of extending that idea though it that i think that we don't think about or we don't talk enough about how when we're supposed to be advocating for the like anti-censorship and privacy, how the, we can be um, advocating for those ideas outside of just the library itself. Yes. Um, because like when uh, the Patriot Act happened, you know, librarians were known for like trying to push back on that. For, you can't go ahead and like just randomly check people's library records yeah. because you, you're suspicious that they're, you know, of this or that or whatever. You're violating their privacy, you, you know, with, especially if you don't have anything to go you know really go on um yeah but I, I do feel like expanding this idea of censorship and like or how we're talking how we talk about censorship and how 
a lot of people don't have any idea what happened with SESTA-FOSTA. I feel like whenever I tell anybody what that's about, what that really did, they're like, oh, that's bad. You know, like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) you know, like, because and I think that still for me relates back to stigma because these are things we don't talk about. These are things that are not like, you know, appropriate, you know, you know, I'm, I am in like one of, in a profession where we don't talk about like sexuality or sex work or anything like that. Um, it's just an, it's a taboo topic. Um, so like the idea of, of defending, you know, def- or defending um, sex workers, it's not something that people are going to necessarily jump on, but maybe as this idea of understanding we are actually kind of championing, championing like people who are more marginalized, you know, because they're the ones who need the most access. And so I, I really like playing around with that idea of increasing that level of um, awareness and even just trying to get more libraries to carry books by sex workers about sex work in the libraries yes. that they um, buy books for. So, yeah, I think that's incredibly important, and and tying it into like the already grounded in librarianism concept that is like anti-censorship um Mm -hmm. yeah I think that that's that's really brilliant um there's there's a line that I just want to talk about because I was I I guess I hadn't really I knew it but I didn't know it and the way you put it was really striking it's in your afterwards again it's everything it's so good um you say data is now more valuable than oil yeah which like that's just like blows my mind to think about uh you can't see it you know and that's like but so many of those big companies like amazon and google um you know anyone who's advertising anything to you it's all because they have your data and like they know what you um Uh you know what you what you've talked about what you're interested in. I just saw something earlier today. Um, it, it was by somebody who like, by an engineer who like understands these algorithms. And he was talking about how he had uh, just visited his mom and then he started getting advertisements for her toothpaste. He never talked about her toothpaste with yeah. his mom, but he, but because of the proximity, they, you know, it, your phone knows where you were. Yeah. You were by your mom for a while, you know, and they know what kind of toothpaste she has. So like, let's start advertising this toothpaste to you. And like, he made this connection that kind of explained just how kind of insidious these kinds of things are in our lives. And like, and people are kind of, I don't know, people are, I feel like are a little bit like whatever about it, but I think it's just going to continue and it's going to get creepier and creepier. Absolutely. I mean, and you touch a little bit on facial recognition software, which is like, it's not even accurate and it's it's super fucked up but it's it's starting to be everywhere like Detroit has the um the green light program and it's just like it's all starting to be all it's super racist too it's like it's super like it misidentifies people like uh, like black people way more times than white people I mean yep and it misidentifies them yeah yeah and there's been there's been already some instances of people being like arrested um inaccurate like for doing nothing because they were this is an algorithm yeah they were like quote unquote uh identified by the facial recognition software yeah it's just gonna get creepier um I (laughs) I do love that you talk about um 
sharing what you learned from sex workers as far as data security goes um, with like with other librarians and like learn that you can learn a lot from sex workers and data security because yeah, that's like a huge part of, um, it used to make me super paranoid. Um, I'm probably a little less paranoid now, <laughs> but it's the like online security part that really freaks me out because there's just, if people really want to figure out who you are, they generally can, if you have a presence online. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was kind of one of my arguments was that sex workers, I mean, like librarians are, have historically been like considered like these advocates of, you know, privacy, specifically patron privacy. But I feel like sex workers have, you know, come, you know, come up to the fore as being much bigger and better privacy advocates than librarians have. And I also kind of plugged an organization that um, I'm involved with called Library Freedom Institute in there too. So hopefully, some of the librarians reading that will <laughs> join up with uh, LFI oh, yeah. to learn more about privacy advocacy. What is, what is one thing you want the greater public to know about sex work or sex workers? Um, I think that we're everywhere, really. Like, I think one thing that has been kind of cool since coming out about this is the messages I've gotten from other library workers who've done sex work who aren't out. Um, cool. And just knowing, like, if I could be... I think this would be more like a little bit more um, dicey if I was a teacher doing this. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but just kind of coming, you know, like, but there's plenty of other ones where you're, you could be more kind of protected depending on like what you're doing. Like if you're a doctor or, you know, something like that or a lawyer um, and just being out about it. There's plenty of, there's plenty of, of us out there. Like, you know, people, they're just not telling you this is a very normal thing for people to do. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that, that was a lot of what I was trying to convey in my book. And I feel like some, some, um, some of the feedback I got from of it was that it was not as risque as people thought it would be. I'm not sure what they thought I was going to do. And I, I, there's some things I made, I sanitized a little bit, I think, in there for like the kind of audience I imagined. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but I wanted it to be accessible and just like to try to open up these kinds of conversations so yeah yeah and I got the I got the read that you were not trying to be sensationalistic you were trying to like paint an accurate picture of yeah I just did that with the title I made the title yeah <laughs> it's beautiful I love it <laughs> everyone go read it uh again it's uh I was a stripper librarian by Christy Cooper it's fantastic um are you ready for rapid fire questions Okay. Okay. I am. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Salty or sweet? Salty. Voyager or Deep Space Nine? I'm not sure. Probably, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think I've seen Voyager, but I've seen Deep Space Nine, so I have to say Deep Space Nine, but I would really just pick um, the Enterprise with, with Jordy and oh Picard. Oh, yeah, uh, Next Generation. Yeah, it's my favorite. Yeah, Next Generation. It's the best one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh favorite place you've ever been Ooh, I don't know I don't think I've been in enough places <laughs> <laughs> that's like one of my regrets is I just like I just worked really I just worked a lot and I was like I'll travel something maybe I will travel someday but I've not done a lot of traveling yeah um what about a Jamaica maybe Jamaica oh I don't know oh yeah 
um, book from a mandatory, from your mandatory reading list? Um, since we're talking about sex work and I, it, and I have this right here. Well, not that it's, again, it's on a podcast, but if people, oh, it's so fuzzy. Oh, it's so yes. good. Revolting prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is the book I keep recommending to people who want to understand more about like sex worker rights. So yeah hands down fantastic choice um okay a song an album or an artist you've been obsessed with lately um Krongbin. oh i don't think i know who that is there's it's super hard to spell but they're like taking off and getting despite the fact that they're you can never spell their name correctly <laughs> or like on spotify or wherever i mean that people are figuring out how to spell it just to find them cool so yeah perfect uh, they will be linked in the show notes once I figure out how to spell it. <laughs> um, what is your secret talent? I can never get lost. Oh, no shit. Like, I always, I mean, I can make a wrong turn, mm-hmm. but I'll figure, I don't know, like, I have a, G, like a GPS in my brain that kind of always knows what direction it's facing. Yeah. So I'm like, I've just never been worried about getting lost. I'm, I envy that. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's not that that comes up much for me, but I don't know. Or if you've been like, you're on a trip with people, you take the wrong turn and they're like, oh no. I'm like, it's fine. We'll figure it out. Like, yeah. (laughs) Or your phone dies and you don't have a GPS anymore and you're just, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Finish this sentence. Great or good sex is. Um, I feel like it's different for different people, but I think, um, I don't know. I think when you have like a good flow, maybe I'll say it because I feel like that could cover a lot of people and what their different people are interested in. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Stopping time. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> that was so fast. Um, and then oh, I thought about that one. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> You can tell. <laughs> um, something simple that brings you joy. Just like reading before I fall asleep. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Looking forward to that, like that quiet time. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Even if it even when it's right when I wake up and I have to think about that part of the day later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole day. <laughs> oh, that's so perfect. I did, I did read your book before bed many, many a night and so great. Um, okay. Well, that's, that's the end of the rapid fire. Um, so thank you for joining me. This was, yeah, this was so fun. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad we made it happen. Um, cool. Well, let's say goodbye to the listeners and, uh, and then I'll stop recording. (laughs) Bye everybody. Bye. Oh my gosh, these endings. I'm, I actually kind of love the awkward sign-off, even though every time it comes around, I'm just like, how do I, <laughs> how do we sign off? I'll let you in on this. Um, signing off of these interviews every time is so awkward because we actually stay on the video call, but then we're also saying goodbye. And I'm always worried that they're going to hang up and then we don't get to like have our little moment after the interview being like, how do you feel? Da, 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 da. And uh, I like having that that little personal uh, moment after we've just like talked into the abyss for a while. Um, so 
it's just really awkward. I'm always afraid they're going to hang up and then we're awkwardly saying goodbye and I'm trying to explain beforehand. And I know I edit these, but anyway, regardless, I just thought I'd share that with you because it's really, it's always awkward and I always want to just laugh at myself. Maybe one day I'll figure out how to stop being awkward, but then maybe I'd stop being interesting. So we'll just stick with weird. Weird is great. So that's Christy Cooper. I had such a fun time. A link to purchase her book is going to be in the show notes, so check that out. I bought two, gave one to a friend. It's great. It's a it's a really quick read. I mean, if you're like me and just got like swept up in the nostalgia of it, but I'm sure it's a quick read for other folks as well. Yeah, so check out the sh- links in the show notes. Um, I do try to include links to things that we talked about or things that I th- thought of while we were talking or while I listened back to it. The show notes are fun is all I'm saying. Go check it out in there. Sometimes I throw in some really obscure strange things so do check it out. I'm really grateful to be back on a posting schedule. It feels great and it's wonderful to have you all to come back to. So thank you for being here. Thank you for listening Um, and thank you to everyone who supports the show. So with that Let's have a space fact. Did you know that stars can bring themselves back from the dead? When a star dies and becomes a white dwarf, which sounds like something out of D&D, honestly. But so we got a white dwarf and they explode into a supernova And what that does is it kind of becomes a space defibrillator of their own creation and it sucks in material from the surrounding space and uh, it's enough material to bring the star back to life. Um, So for those of you who have been waiting for a zombie apocalypse, we are already surrounded by zombies. Congratulations, you were right. Um, I don't know what to do with this information, but there are zombies in this world, and they are shining bright like a diamond. Nanu nanu, motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah, yeah.